1: Well, one question that has been asked since the dawn of time is this the real life. In fact, I think there was even a Queen song that had that as a prominent lyric. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. There's a couple of really really fascinating things going on right now. One, we are seeing tremendous innovation in computer technology which is making virtual reality uh, realistic virtual reality, not a thing of the future, not a thing to aspire to, but a thing of the present. And every day, it seems, there's a different story about how virtual reality and the metaverse is reshaping the world that we're in. There was a story just last week about a woman who claimed that she was actually gang-raped in the metaverse, and she wants those people charged. Well, uh, what if we're already living in virtual reality? What would that mean? What would that change? Nothing. Or everything Well, someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about some of those questions, writing and providing answers to some of those questions, is David Chalmers. He's a professor of philosophy and neuroscience and the co-director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness at New York University. He's also the author of a couple of books, including Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds, and the Problems of philosophy. Very, very excited to welcome David Chalmers. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Oh,
2: thanks, Frank. It's great to be here.
1: So I am interested in the work that you do, but I'm also pretty interested in your life journey. I I know that you taught yourself uh, computers and computer programming at the age of 10, and that you apparently had your first experience in a virtual world all the way back in 1976, a time when I think most people didn't even realize that was still a thing. How did you access a virtual world back in 1976? Yeah,
2: well, I was at I was 10 years old. I was at my father's work. He's a uh, he's a medical researcher. Uh, in a, this was back in Australia where I grew up, Adelaide, Australia, and they had a bunch of computers uh, sitting around. They had a big computer lab connected to a giant mainframe. It was even before the era of the personal computer. But I got on that machine and started looking around to see what was what. And I saw something called ADVENT. And ADVENT was short for adventure. So I just got in there and I ran the ADVENT program. And it turned out to be a program called Colossal Cave Adventure. It was just a text program. There were no graphics, but you could give it commands like go north, go south, uh, pick up the uh, the suitcase, fight with the giant, and you know it was actually it was a predecessor of today's video games and today's virtual worlds. Even though no text, no graphics. Actually, it was the very first text adventure game. Turns out, I didn't know any of this, but Colossal Cave. 1976 wow. was one of the very first virtual worlds.
1: W- was that a game changer for you in terms of your thinking about this stuff? Or did you experience it, enjoy it, and then just go about your life as it was? I think it probably was
2: a, probably was a slow burn. I suddenly didn't, it didn't suddenly turn me into a philosopher who thought about virtual worlds. But, you know, um, my whole life I've been into science fiction that explores these ideas. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke talks about simulated worlds. At some point, when by the time that the Doctor Who, even back in the 1970s, I was a Doctor Who fan. They had some episodes where they had uh, where they all go into a virtual world. And, you know, by the time The Matrix came around in 1999, I was well and truly ready to think philosophically about, oh, my God, what what are these new? Artificial realities.
1: It's difficult to imagine that the Matrix, which still seems so futuristic and so new, is now 23 years old. I know they just came out with a new Matrix these days, but a whole generation has now grown up knowing of the Matrix. For people that haven't seen the film or don't remember it because they haven't seen it in a couple of decades, basically the premise is what we know as the real world, what we know as base reality, is not. It's a computer simulation. And then um, uh, Keanu Reeves's character Neo is sort of pulled into the real world by Lawrence Fishburne to you know rescue the real world from all these horrible horrible people. And when Lawrence Fishburne pulls Keanu Reeves out of the Matrix, he essentially says, "Welcome to the real world." You did some writing and a lot of commentary around the time that the Matrix uh, came out. What was your analysis of that film from a philosopher from a philosoph- philosopher's perspective?
2: Yeah, you know, it turns out that the uh, the Wachowski sisters are super interested in uh, in philosophy. I never actually met them and talk- talked to them, but the production company uh, basically commissioned a bunch of essays by philosophers to go on their uh, their website and just around this time I'd been starting to think about these issues initially thinking about you know brains in vats and computer simulations but yeah part of the idea was yeah could this be happening uh, to us but another key part of the idea is just say we are in a matrix just say we are in a simulated world what does that mean is that real some people say if we're in a simulated world then everything is an illusion whereas I wanted to say actually not so fast. It could be that we're in a matrix, it could be we're in a simulated world, but it doesn't mean everything is an illusion. Like there's still, New York is still here, people are still here, the Empire State Building is still here, even if we're in the matrix. It just turns out it's all digital. But being digital is not a way of being an illusion. Being digital is still perfectly real. So I'm gonna say, okay, the matrix may suck. I'm not saying the matrix is good. The machines are controlling us and manipulating us in all kinds of ways. But I don't want to say it's – but I still want to say in a certain sense it's real.
1: So uh, what you're saying is even if – all of what we know is reality, the microphone that I'm speaking into, the coffee that I'm drinking, the clothes that I'm wearing, if none of that is real, uh, or or if none of that is what we believe it to be, if it's all just some uh, computer simulation that's digitally created, if we are living in the matrix, if my body, uh, if it actually exists, is actually plugged into a computer somewhere, and my brain is just being fed these images, what you're saying, and a hallmark of your work as a philosopher, is that these virtual worlds are no less real than if this was the real world. Yeah, I
2: want to say it's, it can still be perfectly real. Maybe it's a created world, like maybe the, uh, the machines created it, so maybe it's like second in line. But I don't think that's any different from, say, a scenario where you have God up in heaven creating our universe as a, um, as a kind of copy of heaven. Just say God does that, that doesn't mean this isn't real. It just means it's not the original. So I think basically you can think of, you know, if there's a computer simulation, there's a simulator who set it up. They're kind of like the God of the simulation. If we're in a simulation, uh, this simulator created our world. And, yeah, you know, they created our world as a digital world made of, you know, basically digital processes on a computer. But I don't think. Yeah, I think digital processes are still perfectly real. It's like in physics. Some physicists entertain the idea that underneath the analog level of physics is some kind of digital level. If we're in a simulation, that's what the world is like. But I want to say, still real, you're still having perfectly meaningful... You can still have a perfectly meaningful life inside the matrix, inside a simulation, inside a virtual reality.
1: Uh, In terms of... And you've given, uh, I think, all of us a lot to think about with the sentence that you just said. We've, I think a lot of us have played video games before. And, uh, you know, Super Mario Brothers, for instance. Mario is controlled by the buttons that I'm pushing on a controller. He hops on a mushroom, he breaks bricks with his head, he uh, jumps down a plunger. And I'm controlling uh, the, you know, all of Super Mario's actions with my uh, touching of buttons on a Nintendo controller. Can virtual beings, can beings that are created virtually, like a Super Mario, like a Sonic the Hedgehog, like more advanced um, uh, virtual creations for for video games or computer simulations, do you believe that those virtual beings can develop independent consciousness?
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's funny you mentioned, like, say, Super Mario, because uh, that's basically an avatar for you that you control these characters inside video games that you control they're kind of like your digital body um, you in that case you are controlling them Mario is uh, is conscious because you are you're uh, you're controlling it. this is what you know in video games we distinguish player characters from non-player characters the player characters are the ones like Mario that are uh, you know some human being is actually controlling them Where it gets really interesting is non-player characters. I don't know if you saw that movie came out last year, Free Guy?
1: Uh, No, it's on my list because it's nominated for an Oscar, and I'm looking forward to seeing it, and uh, not just for the philosophical implications of it, but uh, I'm told it's actually a pretty decent film.
2: Yeah, it's really good, and actually it's all about non-player characters in a video game. Uh, Ryan Reynolds is, is there living in this world at the beginning. It turns out he's just one of the, Non-player characters. He's a bank teller going through a loop in order that players come in, can come in and turn on their mayhem. But at a certain point, he realizes all this. Oh my God, um, I'm a non-player character in a video game. But he gets some artificial intelligence, so he becomes conscious. And then the question comes up: Is all this real? And uh, his best friend says to him, "Look, I'm sitting here with my best friend, trying to help him get through a tough time. If that's not real," I don't know what is. um, I love this. I I like the way this movie illustrates how life in a a virtual world can still be totally real.
1: Uh, I I am going to check that out, actually. I was planning on it anyway. But uh, uh, from a technological perspective and a philosophy perspective, your answer is yes. You do think that virtual, what you refer to as non-player characters, can develop an independent consciousness.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think eventually. Right now, probably the non-player characters we have in video games right now, they're very simple algorithms, you know, a few lines of code. Uh, they're probably not conscious. But, but fast forward a, two or three decades to when we have human-level artificial intelligence, but yeah, AI is advancing super fast right now with what they call deep learning. If you get machines that can learn to be as intelligent as a human being in their behavior, I would say there's no obstacle to them being conscious too. It's not like biology is special and silicon is out. That's a kind of bio-chauvinism. Only a biological being can be conscious. I don't see why in principle digital being in a virtual world couldn't be conscious too.
1: what's talking with David Chalmers he is a professor of philosophy and neural science at NYU and he's uh, written a book where he explores a variety of these subjects it's called reality plus virtual worlds and the problems of philosophy now uh, a, a very big name in the tech sector is Elon Musk he's involved in cars he's involved in space he's involved in cryptocurrencies he's involved in anything that people consider futuristic and he's spent a great deal of time thinking about and speaking about whether or not we might actually be living in a simulation. This is a question that was posed to Elon Musk a few years ago on this subject, and this is what he said in response. And
0: remember, like the, the, the strongest argument for the, for us being in a simulation, probably being in a simulation, I think is the following. Um, that that 40, 40, 40 years ago, we had pong, like two rectangles and a dot. That right. was what games were. Um, now, 40 years later, we have photorealistic 3D simulations with millions of people playing simultaneously, and it's getting better every year. Mm-hmm. And soon we'll have vir- you know, vir- virtual reality, we'll have augmented reality. Um, if you assume any rate of improvement at all, um, then the games will become indistinguishable from reality, just ind- indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that rate of advancement drops by a thousand from what it is right now, um, then you just say, okay, well, we'll let's imagine it's 10,000 years in the future, uh, which is nothing in the evolutionary scale. Um, so, um, so, so given that we're clearly on a trajectory to have games that are indistinguishable from reality, and those games could be played on any set-top box or on a PC or whatever, and there would probably be, you know, billions of such, uh, you know, Computers, or set-top boxes, it would seem to follow that the odds that we're in base reality is one in billions. So Tell me what's wrong with that argument. Is the answer yes? <laughs> the argument is probably, I mean, but I just like, is there, is there a flaw in that argument? I mean, someone, but someone, I'm not sure what a, the error. In, right, no, no, the argument makes sense. So the assumption then is that somebody beat us to it, and this is a game. No, no. there's a one-in-billions chance that this is base reality. Oh, okay. What do you think? Well, I think it's one-in-billions. Okay.
1: David, do you agree with Elon Musk's uh, analysis of the situation there? Do you think that, th- that it's likely, uh, especially as Elon Musk describes it there, overwhelmingly likely, that we're actually living in a computer simulation rather than base reality?
2: with the thought, I would not go as far as Elon Musk goes to say that it's overwhelmingly likely. But I think there is an interesting thought behind this, which is that you know, simulation technology is getting better and better. Eventually, we will have these indistinguishable simulations, indistinguishable from physical reality. And it could well be that there are many more simulations than non-simulations. So if there are 90, if there are a hundred times more simulations. The non-simulations, and they all had consciousness like mine. Then you'd say, well, the odds that I'm one of the simulations is only, you know, one in, the odds that I'm unsimulated would only be one in 100 or so. And I think there's a couple of places you can get off the bus with this argument. First, this argument assumes that simulated systems will have conscious experience like us. I'm sympathetic with that, you know, as I was saying, but I can't claim to be certain of it. Consciousness is something we don't really understand right now. And the other other thing it assumes is that once we're actually able to create those simulated universes, then we will create them, or people, other civilizations will create them. And I don't know. I can't be certain about that. Maybe we'll decide it's a bad idea to create these simulations. Maybe we'll decide it's monstrously unethical to play God and create simulated worlds like that. So if we don't create those simulations, then, then the argument won't go through. But still, I'm inclined to think 50% 50% that you can you, you can create them and 50% that someone will, so that gives me like I'll just back of the envelope calculation. Maybe 25% chance that most beings are simulated. 25% chance we could be in a simulation ourselves.
1: Now, I'd like to think that I think independently and am certainly conscious and am making my own decisions. And I have spent a great deal of time thinking what it means if I'm actually not a biological being and I'm actually a a computer si- simulation. Why would someone, be it a biological being or a computer or anybody? Why would someone go to the trouble of creating a computer simulation in which the people in it—people like me, people like you, people like the people listening—are are self-aware and can make their own decisions?
2: Yeah, well, why do uh, why do we make computer simulations now? Sometimes for uh, you know, scientific purposes, we create giant simulations of the oceans or the climate or the cosmos. Sometimes for entertainment purposes, we uh, run a simulation of history to see how it goes. Sometimes for decision-making processes, uh, we want to, uh, to figure out you know, what's going to happen in the future. Maybe it's marketing, maybe it's an election. So I can imagine all those being reasons. Maybe they want to simulate history a thousand times over with different parameters and see what happens. That could be science. Maybe it's entertainment. They want to watch their ancestors and uh, and bring it all to life. Maybe it's decision-making in, uh, in the black mirror. In an episode of Black Mirror, couples routinely run simulations of themselves going on, going on dates, going on relationships to see if they're compatible. So I guess those are some possible reasons. Now, you might say it's monstrous to be doing that and creating conscious beings, but… People have done monstrous things before.
1: For it, It's certainly possible, I guess, that we could be living in a computer simulation which would be projecting and monitoring what would life have been like if, uh, say, Donald Trump had been elected president in 2016 or Joe Biden had been elected president in 2020.
2: Yeah, exactly. Instead of this boring world that we live in where Hillary Clinton was, <laughs> was elected <laughs> in 2016, just say the simulators got really weird on us and tried to run a simulation where Who's the who's like the most way out hypothesis we can imagine for who was in, who was elected in 2016? Let's make it Donald Trump, and let's see if the people will just accept that and like buy that this is reality. And I think they slipped it past us.
1: I, I'm sh- I'm sure that you're familiar with the. The Mandela Effect. I've talked about it on the air before, but uh, essentially for people that may not have heard me talking about it, the Mandela Effect is mass misremembering of facts. Uh, Different people who don't know one another all misremember the same thing the same way. It's called the Mandela Effect because apparently there's all sorts of people that remember Nelson Mandela dying years ago. The same could be said, I think, of uh, Desmond Tutu. Uh, The same could be said with whether or not the Monopoly guy has a monocle or whether or not Curious George has a tail or the the peanut oh, butter
2: thing with the Berenstain bears. Right.
1: Uh, I could have passed a lie detector that these bears were called the Berenstain bears, not the Berenstain bears. Uh, there have been some people that have said that that Mandela effect could be evidence of a computer simulation and a glitch in the programming. Do you subscribe to that at all?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. That's one hypothesis. Another hypothesis is just like, yeah, people, people's memories are highly fallible. Likewise, people say, ah, you know, people, you know, some people seriously say Donald Trump is evidence that we're, that this is a glitch in the simulation. Or uh, there's an article in The uh, the New Yorker a few years ago when they had a, uh, when they messed everything up at the Oscars one night. It's like, ah, the Oscar, you know, on the Best Picture award moonlight and la-la land at the end of the night. I said, this is proof we're in a simulation. Well, maybe, but maybe it's just a proof that even in uh, even in ordinary reality, you should expect unexpected things to happen from time to time. So I guess I don't find it strong evidence, but who's to say? If it's a simulation, it might be a glitchy one.
1: <laughs> a-, a couple of years ago, uh, d- another philosopher named uh, Dr. Preston Green wrote a- an op-ed in the New York Times in which he said that um, we might be living in a computer simulation and we might not, but it doesn't make any sense for us to try to find out. Because if we do find out that we're living in a computer simulation, maybe... Whose ever simulation this is, could um, could pull the plug, and it would not work out well for those of us that are in the simulation if we become aware that we're, you know, simulated. And I was reminded at the time of a, a Star Trek The Next Generation episode from over 30 years ago that I've never forgotten, uh, where a hologram, a digital creation, essentially learns that he's a hologram, and he wonders what that means for his own existence. And he's talking to some of the real humans in in that world tell me something dicks you've gone
0: will this world still exist will my wife and kids still be waiting for me at home
1: i honestly don't know david from your perspective do you agree with that that it doesn't make sense for us to find out if this is a simulation
2: well, I guess it all depends what the simulator's purposes are and what their constraints are. If, just try, if their whole point is to see if we can figure out we're in a simulation, then, yeah, maybe we figure it out, that's the end of history. On the other hand, maybe they're just, you know, setting up the simulation, let it run, and then they're just not even watching, and they'll just pick up all the statistics in the morning to, uh, to see what happens. You know, another scenario you might worry about, though, is just say we start creating simulated universes of our own. That's going to take so much computer power that you might think, okay, at that point we're going to be stretching the uh, stretching the computer power of the uh, of the computers in the next level up that the simulators are using. It's going to be a massive energy bill for them. Maybe at some point we might like you know we might overload their computers and then they would uh, then they would halt or at least slow down the simulation. So some people say we should be careful in creating virtual reality technology ourselves.
1: It, speaking of creating virtual reality technology ourselves, it seems like that is going full speed ahead. Facebook has changed their whole company's name to Meta. Uh, that is short for Metaverse. Uh, a friend of mine is uh, developing a Metaverse city um, com- complete with you know addresses that are in real life and people can uh, buy their address in this Metaverse. Where is t- technology now assuming we are living in base reality where is technology now with respect to virtual reality and that uh, and uh, and that whole realm
2: I'd say it's still early days and it's still primitive in some ways but it is moving fast you know uh, just the last 10 years or so these virtual reality headsets have become accessible for consumers through companies like Oculus which is owned by Facebook or meta you know the oculus quest 2 that's a pretty good uh headset i've got one i use myself pretty often that's just 300 dollars. anyone can uh, can buy one and experience a virtual world that said they're still pretty clunky you know you got to put on this giant geeky headset that's pretty heavy and uh, makes you look pretty weird but a lot of people think then that the coming form factor is going to be something more like glasses once we get it into uh, like a glasses form factor where you can see uh, a virtual world around you. That'll be more acceptable. But there's also augmented reality where you know virtual objects get projected into the physical world around you too. And I think probably it's 10 years off until that technology mm. is starting to get really good. But it is coming.
1: As it stands now, whether it's the goggles that you have or similar technology that might be on the way, how do people enter the metaverse with their avatar? Let's say you have those Oculus goggles, and pardon my ignorance on this, but I I don't have a lot of experience utilizing virtual reality myself. Is there a software? Is there an app? What do you do to actually enter a virtual reality world?
2: Yeah, it's a little bit like with a smartphone. There's a whole bunch of apps. You strap this headset over your head, you, uh, you turn it on and suddenly you see a few, uh, you, maybe you're in a nice little scene in the mountains, but you can call up various screens. And one of those screens is basically like an app store or an app list, like on your smartphone. And you can op- open up a video game. If you want to play a video game, you can open up a meditation or an exercise app, if that's what you want to do. Or you could open up, you know, Facebook's uh, virtual world is one called Horizon, Horizon Worlds. You can open up Horizon Worlds and then go in and hang out in that social space with other people. So every week, I've actually got a weekly meeting with a bunch of friends around the world, philosophers into VR, and we just you know meet up in a different space like that every week. Actually, the hardest part every week is coordinating on getting into that same space in virtual world together. That always, that always takes 10, 15 minutes. But after we do that, then, yeah, I'm in an avatar. They're in an avatar. We can stand around. We can talk. We can, uh, we can play a game, someone can give a lecture, and it's like, kind of like a real social space happening you know, inside a room or inside a beautiful natural location all inside a virtual world
1: i I did give some thought to this around the time of the pandemic last year when people were not able to spend holidays with extended family how nice it would be to be able to do so virtually without having to worry about contracting the coronavirus or, or something uh so i mean there are a lot of uh applicable use cases where you could see the benefit of this do you think facebook's embrace is a sort of a game changer when it comes to the metaverse
2: it's certainly got a whole lot of people interested in it right now and it's made for a whole lot of excitement and hype and microsoft is getting behind the metaverse too apple is said to be developing their own uh vr goggles and uh and headsets although without using the word metaverse for them i don't know to what extent it's a game changer my sense is Possibly it's a bit premature. Um, a lot of people think, OK, Facebook had all these difficulties coming, with uh, whether it was regulators or, uh, or downturns in, their, in the use of social media. So this is like where they want to go in the future. I do suspect it's, you know, they're probably getting a little bit ahead of themselves. I think we're probably going to have two or three good years of metaverse hype with uh, Apple coming through and Google coming through. Uh, Microsoft is doing it, too. It wouldn't surprise me if that's followed by a metaverse downturn for, you know, another uh, another three or four years until, you know, maybe in ten years, um, it'll actually be a mature technology. It could be a little bit niche before that, but it is very cool to uh, to see all the activity. This being devoted to thinking about it right now.
1: Well, there's also a lot of possible drawbacks, right? I mean, we have seen problems in, in American society with things like uh, sloth, with, with things like uh, an increase in obesity, a decline in physical activity, uh, a decline in in-person Interactions, things like in-person uh, sporting events and and things of that nature. Is there a problem? Is there a potential that the uh, prevalence of the metaverse would exacerbate those problems? From where you're standing.
2: Yeah, there's definitely uh, there's definitely potential. I think there's potential for a lot of good and potential for a lot of bad. Yeah, with health, it's like okay, if we got too obsessed, we could neglect our physical body. On the other hand. A lot of people, actually, turns out, are using VR right now for exercise, for workout. Put yourself in a really cool location, and you can you know, dance to a virtual, uh, virtual beat and uh, you know, go through all kinds of exercises with an amazing instructor right there. So, yeah, there are downsides and, and upsides. I also wa- worry about a metaverse where corporations are controlling everything, where it's all meta or Apple or Google controlling these virtual worlds. I mean, just like me, you think these virtual worlds are all real. It's kind of like having corporations control, you know, everything around you—the sure. world that you're uh, that you're in. And do we want corporations to have that degree of control? I mean, it's bad enough when they're manipulating our news feed on social media. But, you know, think about the privacy and manipulation issues. Then, so you know, I hope it's possible for there to be some kind of open metaverse that users can control and govern to a considerable extent. But you know, it's easy to be pessimistic.
1: Yeah, oh, well, that's for sure. I mean, if you look at uh, people that get banned for social media for expressing certain content, if you look at the apps that get banned from certain platforms because they're thought to be promoting negative content, if you look at the whole debate about Spotify, uh, do you really want these people making decisions about a digital universe? Uh, my answer is is certainly no. And uh, I think uh, once we've got the philosophical aspect of things figured out, we probably need to start worrying about the, the legal issues. Implications of that as well. Uh, let me ask you about your book, Reality Plus Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. What are people going to learn in this book? What is this book going to lead them to think about?
2: Yeah, well, it's all about the ideas we've been uh, we've been talking about. You know, roughly, the first half of the book is all about the simulation hypothesis—this idea that we could be in a simulation like the Matrix. And I try and argue both it's a hypo—it's kind of a bad news, good news aspect of that bad news we could be in a simulation but uh, good news if, we're, if we are in a simulation everything is still perfectly real it's not an illusion and then in the second half i apply all that to thinking about the metaverse coming virtual reality technology and there is kind of a, the same thought this metaverse is coming a lot of people think that's an illusion or a hallucination it's just a fiction It's escapism i want to say no that's that's real. Those virtual worlds you hang out with, uh, you hang out in in the metaverse. Um, that's all real. The relationships you have in the metaverse are real relationships. So I want to say you can actually lead a meaningful life there. So I guess I you know I think it was kind of a potentially a positive message. Everyone wants to say it's all dystopian. These virtual worlds. We're all going to be uh, you know we're all going to be locked up like in the uh, the Matrix, out of touch with reality. I want to say well, once you think about it philosophically, this is just another level of reality, and you can be you know in touch with the digital reality of a virtual world, and that can be just as meaningful to you
1: final two questions one, it sounds like um my, my The beginning of my, one of the beginning premises that of our discussion was, should we be behaving differently if it's determined that this is a virtual world rather than base reality? And I guess it, it's clear based on the last 25 minutes of our discussion, the answer to that is no, we shouldn't be behaving differently.
2: Maybe a few differences here and there. You know, if, if I know that we're in a simulation, I'm going to start asking questions like, hey, well, is there p- some possibility that, you know, there could be life after death if the simulators mm. uplift our code? What are they going to be, their criteria for doing that? I might try and start communicating with the, uh, the simulators. I mean, it's kind of like discovering there's a God. Right, and praying. There. Yeah, that would probably affect your life in some ways. Sure. But at a deeper level, it's not like, you know, it's not like it's going to change everything about how you're living your life. You can still have your relationships, your family, your work your uh, your play you can still go to football games on the weekend and so on it's like you know life goes on because it's still all perfectly real
1: and finally the new matrix film have you seen it and if you have is it worth seeing
2: know, i thought it started really well i don't want to give away too many spoilers but at the beginning there's, there's this amazing idea of like a video game of the matrix and we're thinking about simulations within simulations and it's. uh they're poking fun at the idea. It's actually it's the first half an hour or so is very rich philosophically. I'd say by the end, it's, degener- it's kind of it's fallen back into just the kind of familiar themes from the uh, from the early movies and no longer quite as exciting. Still very diverting and very enjoyable, but I still think yeah, the first Matrix movie is is a definitive work of philosophy if you ask me. That really illustrates the idea that you know we could be in a simulated world. The sequels have never really come quite close to, to matching it, but hey, they're still. An enjoyable two hours in the movie.
1: Uh, I uh, I I would. I haven't seen the new the new one yet, but I certainly agree with your philosophy of the of the first one. Uh, David, I wish you the best of luck with the book. I want to encourage everybody that's interested in these subjects to check it out. Again, it's called Reality Plus: Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. I do hope you'll come back. I've really enjoyed our discussion. I've learned a lot.
2: Sure, I'd love to. Great talking to you, Frank.
1: Thank you. It's David Chalmers. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, whether this is a virtual world or a biological one, I will take your phone calls in just a moment at 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, Or am I? Straight ahead.